The entire system is levered. And when you have a system that is levered by design, that system has to grow. If it doesn't grow, it collapses. You know, the crack-up boom and the failure of the currencies occur when every citizen realizes that not only is money printing something that's happening, but they realize that it's something that's happening and cannot stop and will only grow worse. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by Larry Leopard and Brent Johnson. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. Hey, guys, how are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, Almost. Yeah. Hope it was a good holiday for everyone. Um, it's been a decade of a year, uh, so congrats everyone listening to this for getting through it. <laughs> it certainly has felt like longer than one year. Yeah. Um, but we've got a lot of really interesting ground uh, to cover today, uh, and I wanted to actually start things out um, with a review of Brent, your dollar milkshake theory. Uh, so I'm sure probably a lot of the folks listening will be familiar with that theory, but if you could just outline it uh, and describe how you still see the theory, um, that'd be great to just kick us off. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to summarize it fairly quickly. Essentially, what I see happening, the dollar milkshake theory essentially describes how I think a global sovereign debt crisis playing out. And I think that we're going to have a sovereign debt crisis. Now, I've been saying this since like 2018, so it has not happened yet. And I'm the first to hold up my hand and say we haven't had it. Um, right now, debt does not matter. You know, everybody can borrow whatever they want, spend whatever they want, and everybody's just oblivious to it. But I think that that will end. And when that ends, I think that the dollar will be the primary recipient of the crisis and the chaos that ensues. And I think the, the dollar capital flows from around the world will flow into the dollar and out of other currencies uh, for several reasons. And I think when that happens, it ultimately pushes U.S. asset prices higher and pushes foreign assets lower. And it ends in this big you know, crescendo, which will ultimately be really bad for the dollar and the United States. But over the next... I don't know, let's call it two to three years, I think the U.S. is a better place to be invested than the rest of the world. Brent, one of the things that I really like about your theory um, is that it, it kind of the contrarian me, uh, you know, kind of perks up when I hear it, because I think a lot of us, um, I know both of you agree, and probably a lot of the folks listening to this show agree, that what's going on in central banking right now seems really, really excessive. But I think a lot of folks internalize that the negative consequence is going to be a very weak dollar. And I think not a lot of thought is given to what happens if we see a really strong dollar, which is obviously a really large problem for a global reserve currency. So I guess it would just be great to game out with you guys a little, do some kind of scenario planning or analysis or whatever. If we do see a really strong dollar, right, like the dollar milkshake theory predicts, what are some of the most, uh, you know, significant consequences of that happening? You know, it's <laughs> it's a lot of negative consequences. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there are so many knock-on effects of, the, of a strong dollar, it's hard to figure out where to start. But essentially... Without you know getting into too much detail right away, and you know we can go into more detail if you want, the the global monetary system is on a U.S. dollar standard. Now you might not think that it should be, and you might not like that it is, but it is right. And so right now the dollar plays the role that gold played, you know, from call it you know 1930 to or 1940 to 1970. Um, everything is kind of levered off of the the, the United States dollar and money and not money, U.S. dollar money and other fiat money, whether it's euros or yen or reals or whatever it is, it's loaned into existence. So the entire system is levered. And when you have a system that is levered by design, that system has to grow. If it doesn't grow, it collapses. Um, but like any 
system that constantly grows, it will eventually go exponential. And exponential curves don't end well either. They go up faster than anybody can possibly believe, but they always collapse. And so when I look at the monetary system, I sit here and say, it is inevitable that it collapses, whether from deflationary pressures or because they print too much of it and we get the, the, the hyperinflationary move higher, it, it's gonna end really, really badly. The question is, when does it end? That's the understanding that the monetary system is going to fail. There's a little bit of value in that, but the real value comes out in figuring out when. And I don't think any of us, none of us, first of all, none of us know. We've all been speculating on this for, for years now. And um, I, I just think that regardless of which way it goes, we're going to have a lot more chaos this decade than we had the last decade, which is kind of hard to say when you think about it. Um, but I just think that's where we're at. And I think the, you know, the consequences are going to be economic. They're going to be social. They're going to be political. We were joking around beforehand about the fourth turning, which, you know, it's kind of become a cliche because it's kind of become a popular book now. But Jesus, the guy wrote it 25 years ago and everything's coming true. You know, it's it's pretty amazing that he was able to, to, to lay this out and, and then see it in real time. And, you know, it, it's again, it's just a real mess. We were joking again. We were joking about how do you describe what's going on? And it's just a mess. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, I think, I think one of the interesting areas where, you know, we might slightly disagree on a go forward basis, I agree with basically everything Brent said, is just how they resolve it. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a short, there will be a shortage of dollars. And I think that, um, in my opinion, is that it will get resolved in an inflationary outcome, that they won't let too much deflation get going, and that they will invent ways and reasons of printing and, you know, doing quote unquote whatever it takes. That will, you know, literally, uh, you know, blind us with with the light of just how outrageous it is, um, because the alternative of deflation is just a complete collapse, like the 30s, and it would be, they know that would be devastating, and they've said, you know, they've clearly said it. I mean, Bernanke in his famous speech said, "We have a technology. It's called a printing press. We can do whatever is necessary, and we will." And so. I think the end game, I, I feel very strongly about this. I don't, I'd be curious to see how Brent feels about what the odds are, but I feel very strongly that the end game is a worthless, a worthless currencies, worthless paper currencies universally. Now, how quickly we get there and whether it's in my lifetime and I'm 64, I'm not sure. But I, but I think it's, I think a lot gets told in the next five years and I'm, I'm suspecting the entire story gets told within 10 years. Yeah, I, I, would, I would kind of agree with that timeline. Um, you know, I know there's, there's a lot of people who've been saying it's this year, it's this year, it's this year, and they've been saying it for every year for since 1972. Right. And, you know, here we are. Um, and I, I tend to think that these, I mean, these are big, big moves. These are big moves with big global implications. And, you know, kind of by definition, these big global, they, they end up taking a lot longer than you think they should, but then they happen a lot quicker than you think is possible when, when it does. So, I'm kind of one of these people who thinks you need to be ready for it today, but I also actually don't think it's going to happen for three, four, five, six more years. Um, and when I say it, I mean some kind of a reset or culmination or, you know, f however you want to describe this, <laughs> this system that we have. I, I think just from a pure math perspective, something has to give. Um, and whether they reset it uh, proactively or whether they reset it reactively, I do think some type of a reset takes place, call it in the next decade. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't actually mentioned that. There is the possibility that they get intelligent enough to do a reset, to try and arrive at a global 
neutral reserve currency of some making um, before the whole thing, you know, goes to goes to tapioca. You know, that, that, that inflation's yeah. running wild, and they say they all get together and say, "Okay, this is what we got to do." You know, Larry very correctly said they, and I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I don't think he just means the Fed. I mean, I think he definitely means the Fed, but I think he also means the ECB and the Bank of Japan and the Reserve Bank of Australia and the Bank of Canada. I mean, all of these institutions, first of all, all the leaders went to the same schools. They all know each other. They all learned the same thing and they all believe the same thing. Um, and so while on the one hand, they're competitors, on the other hand, they're colleagues. And it's not like one of these guys believes something radically different than the other or ladies and, uh, and they're going to implement some... Well, I shouldn't say that. It's not that they can't, but they traditionally have all kind of done the same thing, right? And, and, and everybody's kind of in the same boat right now. And despite the, the tough financial situation that the U.S. finds itself in, so does Europe, so does Japan, so does Australia, so does China, right? And so the, the, the big, I guess, defining point of my thesis is not that the U.S. is better run or has smarter central bankers or has more altruistic you know, leaders. It's that I don't think that when you leave the United States that all of a sudden these political leaders and monetary leaders all of a sudden get smart. I think they're just as crazy as the ones at the Fed and, you know, in D.C. And so I think the you know, point uh, Larry was making about fiat currencies losing value, I, I completely agree. It's just that I, I think for several reasons, Fiat currencies, other than the dollar, lose value and potentially go into hyper hyperinflation long before the U.S. dollar does, right? And I think that that, that happening, if, I think if there is a, if they're not proactive and if they are reactive, then I think it will lead to a progression of dominoes that fall rather than just a big reset all at once. Now, I can't rule out the fact that, like Larry said, you can't rule out the possibility that they get religion and they proactively head off some kind of a crisis. But that's typically not the way it's gone. And I think for several reasons, the U.S. is not going to give up its reserve currency status willingly. It may be taken from them or they may lose it unwillingly, but I don't think that they will just one day wake up and say, we no longer want it. Um, and, and so as a result, I, I think there is going to be a progression of it's all going to be kind of one crisis, but I think it will advance in stages. And to the extent that the U.S. dollar loses its value or goes through some kind of a hyperinflationary event, I think it's the last one to do so. So, again, just for anybody who's either not familiar with what I'm saying here, I don't want them to think that I'm a defender of fiat currencies and that I think it's a great system. And, you know, the dollar has these wonderful attributes. It's really just a... a my, my, my thesis is really just a consequence of the design. Well, of the and there's system. a there's a geopolitical. I mean, you, it's interesting. Britt started off by talking about all the all these bankers know one another, and you yeah. know, the, the two two big players that are important in this whole thing and are going to have a big vote on where we go are China and Russia. I mean, China being you know arguably the largest economy, very close to it on a manufacturing base, although they have a lot of problems, and then Russia, you know, being a huge supplier of energy, which we're now seeing is critical, absolutely critical to the survival of Western Europe, you know, in any kind of a cold winter. And so, you know, and these two countries have made enormous bets on gold. I mean, we know for a fact that China has a lot more gold than they report because we can see the records of what they've imported out of out of the Swiss refineries. And we know that Russia immediately turns around and converts the dollars they get from selling oil 
and gas or, or other euros that get selling oil and gas into gold. And so, you know, it's um, there will be a lot of parties at the table. If, if a reset is to be discussed or arrived at, there'll be a lot of parties at the table and all the parties will have slightly different interests based on the asset pattern of what they hold. I mean, I think what makes now so interesting, especially, if, I mean, I'm a big lover of history, right? And I'm a big lover of other cultures and traveling and I love going to other parts of the world. And, you know, the history of the world is really about plunder and war and, you know, the, 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 the scarcity of resources and the fight over resources. And sometimes that takes place via cooperation and sometimes it takes place via force. Yeah. And I just kind of feel like this, this is for, this is really like in the truest sense of the world for all the, for all the marbles, right? This is the big game. I mean, this is the, this is the, the global Super Bowl, and I don't, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out. I just don't think it's going to be a nice, easy, uh, peaceful game of touch football. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so guys, help me, uh, Brent, I thought that was a really interesting point that you made uh, that, you know, the way central bankers view each other, not necessarily just as competitors, but actually as colleagues in general. And if you do look at central banking in general, a lot of different central banks kind of move in lockstep with one another. Every once in a while, kind of your, oh, you know, the Australian central bank is hiking rates, you know, 25 bips or whatever. But in general, central banks are kind yeah. of moving in lockstep. So help me put myself in the shoes of a central banker. What do you think they are hoping for here, you know, because sometimes you hear, oh, I, we, I really think they're hoping for inflation. But, you know, then you got guys yeah. like Neil Kashkari coming out and saying, we're actually, we really, really don't want that. So what are they hoping for here when they're doing this experimentation with the monetary system? What's their best outcome? If the central bankers could all get together in Basel, Switzerland, at the Bureau of International Bank of International Settlements, with, you know, they get together, every, I think it's every month or every two months. I can't remember exactly which, which is a big Mordor looking like building. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but yeah. it's. I mean, talk about the, you know, the, the evil empire or whatever you want to call it. I mean, that's it. But um, I, I think the ideal scenario for them would be able to do whatever they do, whether it's stimulus or QE or whatever, and, and engineer, let's call it three to five percent inflation over the next 10 to 15 years annually. And so over the next 10 or 15 years, they reduce the value of the debt outstanding by 50 percent. I think that would be. It. I think if, if I think if they could push a button and get that result right now, they would do it. I agree. I mean, I, there's another argument that they might try something along the lines of the central bank digital currency. I mean, they know they've they know they've kind of got to go direct. Yeah. They know they've got to get money to the lower classes who've been screwed. I mean, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think that all they want to do is get through their term and dump the problem on the next guy. And yet, then I see a guy like Jay Powell, who's actually, as we as we learned in you know New Hampshire, is actually campaigning to, to get reappointed. God knows why. Yeah, <laughs> guys, I, I want to return to uh, a point. Uh, you know, one prediction, right, uh, from the dollar milkshake theory, which is a rising dollar. Um, Help me understand how that would actually translate into different asset prices. So on the one hand, I can imagine that, you know, Brent, you kind of made the point, it's actually good to own US-based assets, right? Because, you know, a rising dollar means you have global funds flowing in, uh, and that should trickle down into, you know, companies and actually probably the bond market as well uh, for the US. But, you know, historically, a rising yeah. dollar has actually been bad for asset prices in general, especially risk assets uh, in general have, you know, had huge sell-offs basically when there's a rising dollar. Walk me through, like, if we do see the dollar milkshake kind of play out, we see a precipitously rising dollar. How does that impact different asset classes? Like, maybe if we want to talk yeah. about the stock market versus the bond market. I think the first thing I would say is it, it kind of depends on the speed with which the dollar is rising. 
Um, you know, the reality is, is that in 2008 and nine, the dollar was the dollar index, and I'll just use the dollar index because it's it's a widely followed index, but the dollar index was around 80 or 85 or something. Um, you know, and then after 13 years of QE, it's at 95, right? So it's gone up 15, 20% in the last 10 to 15 years. But over that time period, stock prices have doubled or tripled, right? And so it's not necessarily that a rising dollar is bad for stock prices. It, it's mainly when the dollar rises really fast or, or and kind of the reasons why it's rising that tends to be bad because if it rises too fast, again, because the whole world is levered off of dollars, when the underrising leverage rises in price, it tends to put pressure on the assets that are financed in that underlying mm -hmm. um, collateral. And so that's, you know, we, we basically had a margin call on the dollar. And this is really what happened in 2008 and nine as well is, you know, the, 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 the euro dollar system was starved of dollars and it led to, you know, assets being sold. And then, you know, it, it becomes a self-perpetuating thing. When assets get sold, then you have to sell even more to meet the margin call, but your asset prices are falling while the debt stays the same. And then the same thing happened again in 2020 um, when, when you get a margin call on that underlying collateral, everything, regardless of whether you want to sell it, you have to sell it to meet that margin call. And so that, and that's what I was talking about. You get the system where it either goes up or it crashes. And that was a, that was a, that was a situation where, um, you know, the underlying collateral was rising in price and the system was crashing. Um, and so if this kind of goes back to my point earlier, it was like, if they could get Three, five, three, four, five percent inflation for 10, 15 years, I think they would love it because under that scenario, maybe you don't have the crash. Maybe you have a slow, stagflationary period of low growth in some assets, but certain, you know, decent growth in other assets, and you just kind of slug along, right? But if you get a situation where the dollar goes from 94 to 104 in two weeks, which is what happened in, or not, they went from like 94 to 102 in two weeks in March of 2020. Now that's a problem. I don't even think where the dollar right now is around 96. I don't even think they really care where the dollar's at if it's between like call it 86 and 96. You know, I think they'd love to just keep it at 90 and keep everything nice and steady. But where it really starts to get problems is kind of the high 90s and the low hundreds. And then especially if it's going there very quickly because it makes funding, global funding typically takes place in dollars. It makes it more expensive. And it makes it harder just to to finance uh, your operations, and it makes hard it harder to service the dollar debt for countries who have borrowed in dollars. Because if their currencies are falling versus the dollar, not only do they still have to service the debt, but now it's more expensive to service. So, um, but if they could, if but if they could get the dollar. You know, so let's go back to the dollar motion theory. How I see it playing. If it were to rise steadily, I think it could. We, it wouldn't necessarily be a, um, a sledgehammer to the system. But what I think will probably happen is we will have, you know, the dollar will rise fast at some point. It will put pressure, like Turkey's a good example. Like you know, the dollar, rising dollar costs and rising dollar price is putting a lot of pressure on Turkey. Um, and so then they're going to have defaults. But the problem is, is now Italy and Spain and France banks have lent a lot of money to Turkey. So now it causes contagion into those banks 
in Europe, and then perhaps it starts to spread to Europe, and then perhaps it starts to spread to the United States. So you start to get these contagion, these knock-on effects. So my guess is that we'll, we'll have a some period where the, you know, like March 2020, where the dollar will run up a lot, asset prices will come under pressure, they'll do some reaction like they did in 2020, the dollar will fall, everything will calm down a little bit, and then we'll get another run, and maybe this run goes from, I don't know, 100 to 110, and another part of the world blows up, and then they come out and they do all these new programs, and, you know, for six months it's fine, or nine months it's fine, and then you get another dollar run, and so I don't, I don't think that we're going to have this nice, steady progression. I, I think it's, I think we're probably going to have this, um, this period where you know we get these sudden bursts of, of dollar strength. But I think as that starts to happen, then I think people around the world, institutions around the world, companies around the world, will start buying dollars to then put that into the United States, to invest in the United States, right? And so under that, under that type of a scenario, if you're draining capital from the rest of the world and put it in the United States on a relative basis, I think the United States will outperform the rest of the world. And then it kind of becomes, a, again, a self-perpetuating system. You know, strength begets strength and weakness begets weakness. And um, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but that's kind of how I see it playing out. Yeah, I pretty much agree with that. You know, he's got a point in that obviously if the dollar is strong against foreign currencies. I mean, that, that would in theory bring a bid into the U.S. bond market from foreign investors. And of course, we haven't really seen that since 2014. I mean, I, you know, forgetting the, the milkshake piece of it for a moment and just looking at the bond market in isolation, uh, the bond market is a great mystery to me um, in the sense that, you know, who would buy a bond uh, in a, you know, in a negative, in a, a deeply negative real interest rate environment? I mean, where are the bond vigilantes gone? And I think the answer to that question is, is hidden in the, in the plumbing and the, the, machine, the machinery that, you know, that is the Fed that's more or less rigged the bond prices across the curve. I mean, they buy the tips, they buy the long, they buy the short. Um, you know, to me, bond price prices do not reflect real price discovery. They reflect a manipulated market by an enormous government, you know, the U.S. government, the U.S. Fed. And, you know, so far they've gotten away with it because there's a certain amount of people who have to buy them because it's part of their mandate. Um, but I think that that group is growing smaller and smaller over time. And I think that the issuance is going to have to be bigger and bigger because of the social demands, the United States fiscal situation and politics and the fact that, you know, people who once given money, they're going to want more. I mean, I think, you know, Biden, for example, will probably forgive the student loans, you know, before the next before the midterms. And, um, you know, Manchin's holding things up now because they realize that inflation got out of control. But, um, you know, eventually the stamp's going to break and they're going to go back to spending because things are going to get hard again. And so. Um, my view is ultimately the bond market is going to look at the Fed and say sold to you, um, mm. because you know a ten year at one fifty when you know inflation uh, printed inflation and we all know that printed isn't totally accurate is you know running five six percent uh, just makes no sense you lose you know the purchasing power of your principal pretty damn quickly unless you really believe that it is transitory and even the Fed has admitted it's not transitory ironically though it might actually be more transitory than some of us thought. I mean, just, just about the time when the Fed says it's not transitory, I see a lot of deflationary yeah. impulses. You probably do too, Brent, right? Well, yeah, I actually think it's pretty funny that you brought that up because whenever that was a month or so ago when, when Powell said it was said something about we should get rid of the word transitory and everybody's like, yes, see, I told you. And I, and, I, and I thought it was kind of funny because any other time Powell said something, everybody disagreed with him and thought he was an idiot. But now that he says something that they agree with, he's really smart and he figured it all out. 
you know. So well, you and, know. I, and I and I but I, so I actually think he's an idiot because I actually think now I think he's proving once again that he's consistently wrong because I, I actually think yeah, we're about to have right. some softness in the inflation numbers because yeah. you know all the money yeah, yeah. the inflation was driven by all the yeah. money that got printed and everything that happened coming out of COVID. Um, you know, that's they backed off that a lot. I mean, I would have thought deficits and I mean they did not do a lot of the stimmy stuff I thought they'd do. And so my sense is just like yeah. in the 70s, there were periods of high inflation, but there are also periods when it went the other way, you know, and I think we might be in one of those periods when it goes the other way right now. So, but, but I guess yeah. back to your question, Michael, I think ultimately the Fed will have to buy the bond market. If they, if they want to keep interest rates down, they will need to implement, they already are to a degree, and, and the plumbing is so confusing, intentionally so, I might add. But I, you know, they will have to buy the bond market, monetize the bond market, because I don't think any rational actor will be willing to hold that kind of paper at that kind of a negative yield over a long period of time. And, and that will, you know, that will fuel a larger Fed balance sheet, which will fuel more money printing, which, you know, to me, the, the you know, the, um, you know, the elephant in the room that nobody's acknowledging is just that people don't need to necessarily own these bonds. They don't need to necessarily, I mean, they need to own the dollar insofar as they need to service their debts. But beyond that, if you've got legitimate savings not levered, you know, you've got two other choices or many other choices, really. You could put it in real estate, you could put it in stocks, you could put it in gold, or you could put it in Bitcoin. And I think all of those categories will benefit vis-a-vis -vis the bond market. I think the bond market's in a lot of trouble. It's To me, it sticks out like a big, you know, red thumb of, of the worst place to put capital today. I think over the long term that, that that's absolutely correct. I, I think where it gets pretty interesting in the short term is that, again, I don't necessarily disagree with, with Larry's characterization here. Um, but what I would say is look at the yield on a 10-year U.S. Treasury and, and not just look at the level of it, but look at how much it's fluctuated. Mm -hmm. And then look at the same yield on a handful of different European sovereigns and look at the level there. And then, but no, don't just look at the level, look at the, 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 the extent of the fluctuations. The, the US 10 year has fluctuated much more than the 10 years of the other competing um, European and Japanese sovereigns. And so, the the Japan Japan and Europe are, are how do I explain? They are monetizing a bigger percentage of the total issuance than the United States is, and so I would say that the while it, Larry's definitely correct in that the U.S. bond market is is manipulated and it is not true price discovery. The it's even le it, it's more free, <laughs> and it has been and, and it has been allowed to fluctuate more so than, than the number of the competing sovereigns. And, and so I don't think anybody who buys these bonds is planning to hold them for 20 or 30 years. So that, that's number one. But then the other thing what I would say, that, and this is where I think it will get very interesting, and I actually don't know how this will play out. Uh, but no, again, nobody knows anything. We're all just speculating. But I, I agree that the, that the amount the size of the Fed balance sheet and the ECB balance sheet and the Bank of Japan balance sheet, it's indicative of, you know, the fact that these governments can't totally rely on external sources for funding, right? But I think before the Fed buys everything, I think there would be a step there would come before that. And I think they would mandate other institutions to buy them. 
Uh, in other words, they could say to the banks, they could say mm-hmm. to the insurance companies, they could say to hedge funds or who, whoever they are, pen, you know, pension funds, you have, or citizens in your 401ks and your IRAs, 25% of the value of your account has to be used to purchase treasury bonds, da 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 da. And if you don't, you're in violation and the taxable consequences will be yeah. X. Um, again, I'm, I'm, this is speculation on my part, but I, but I would think before they completely monetize the debt by the central bank, they would try to force force the, the private market uh, to help them finance. I think it's an excellent point. Um, I think it's an excellent point. I think it's highly yeah. likely. I think another thing they'll ultimately do before this whole thing is over in the whole money printing, you know, around that they're going to throw, I think they're going to, um, because they've signaled it, Janet uh, has signaled it, I think they're going to get the Federal Reserve is going to have the right to buy stocks. I mean, it's going to be the, you know, the, yeah. the U.S. government IRA protection program, right, which, which says right. that, yeah. you know, in order to protect everybody's savings accounts and IRAs and retirement accounts, you know, and, and keep the markets functioning in a, in a rational way, you know, the Federal Reserve is going to have the right to purchase the S&P 500 index and a bunch of other indices. And and as a result of that, um, you know, we'll look like Japan or we'll look, you know, somewhat like Switzerland. And, um, you know, the, what that more or less is, it's just a formalization of what we know is the Fed put. We don't know what the strike price is on yeah. the Fed put on the, on the stock market, but we know there is one intrinsically. And this would just make it formal. But all of these things, again, as they get unfolded, I think... We'll go back to that von Mises point, which is, you know, the crack up boom and the failure of the currencies occur when every citizen realizes that not only is money printing something that's happening, but they realize that it's something that's happening and cannot stop and will only grow worse. And when that takes place in the minds of a majority of the citizens, the citizens will, you know, Gresham's law says, take all the savings, all the capital they can, and get the hell out of the dollar. Anything other than the dollar. I mean, or any paper currency in any country. Because they realize that the governments have locked them into a system that is just programmed to debase that holding. And that's where, you know, gold, Bitcoin, real estate, and maybe even stocks are all just going to go bananas. Just completely bananas. And, uh, um, you know, it's going to be one hell of a mess, but but that's kind of how I see it unfolding. I'd love to get your guys' opinions on what is the catalyst for that realization. What does it take? Because I think a lot, like I, I've, uh, I'm a big fan actually of Ray Dalio's kind of theory here. He's got you know short term debt cycle, long term debt cycle, and you know his theory of beautiful deleveraging, which is basically this idea that all you know productive growth gets driven by uh, credit for the most part, and you kind of see buildups in credit that happen every four to six years. Uh, you know then. You know, you kind of see the other side of that credit, but it always resets to a higher level of debt, you know, and it kind of goes in this spiral going up like this until there has to be a large deleveraging, right? And these happen every 80 or so years. That's the long-term debt cycle. I think a lot of folks thought that would happen twice within the last decade or so. Uh, I think 2008, the great financial crisis, people saw as an opportunity to deleverage. And I think probably COVID, a lot of people thought that this was going to be the big thing that we've all been waiting for. And you know what? For all the crap that central banks get... Central banks stepped in both times and effectively papered over the solution. You could actually make the argument in COVID, they did it too effectively, right? They might have just thrown gasoline on the fire, right? And the stock market has, you know, doubled or whatever it's done since March of 2020. It's getting harder for me to imagine a situation where they can't step, even as I just heard myself say this, maybe that's the top. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's getting harder to imagine uh, a situation where they can't walk in and just say, hey, here's 
you know, we did five trillion last time, we'll do fifty this time. You know, what what gets us to the end game here? What what is the catalyst? I think the whole system is going to get crushed, quite honestly. And so I don't think we, I don't if if natural markets were allowed to run their course, I think the dollar would eventually go through hyperinflation. But I don't I don't think that that will happen. Yeah. Um, you know, we do not we don't like like Larry, Larry is a fantastic advocate for sound money. And I would if I had to choose between the two, I would most likely choose sound money as well. Right. Real money, not central bank fiat. But, you know, the history of the world says to me in a free market, gold would be money. But the history of the world also tells me very, very rarely have the powers that be let a free market reign for very long. Right. Good point. And so I just I don't I don't see how and because I think the dollars in the last in the line of these dominoes that fall, I don't see how we get to the dollar going through hyperinflation without some big conflict militarily or geopolitically, however you want to describe that prior to that happening. Yeah, I, I take the other side of that. I think I think we will. I think we'll get there. I think it'll just be kind of a natural progression with each, you know, these these contractions, you know, these credit events and then responses are happening, you know, more more quickly. You know, and it, look, this whole thing could take 20 or 30 years. Who the hell knows? But I mean, kind of 2000 was the first one. You know, and I mean, Bernanke literally said, you know, okay, well, just a tech crash. And they just said, well, let's create a housing bubble. You know, we'll take interest rates down. And that created 2008. And then, you know, okay, then that crashed. All right, well, so, you know, let's uh, let's create an everything bubble. You know, let's hold Zerp, at, you know, for a long period of time. And, and you know, we've gotten kind of continually out over our skis. And, you know, the next one will be bigger. The amounts will be bigger, the central bank. And, and more people will be aware of the issue. I was on another call earlier today we we're talking about how you know all these bitcoiners they know austrian economics because they read safe's book i mean it, you know those guys didn't exist in 2008 well bitcoin didn't exist in 2008 so you know the the the, the group you know the the knowledge of the fundamental underlying problem is slowly but surely spreading my view is i look at it on kind of a tipping point kind of basis and you know, I think I think more than ten percent of the people now in this country are aware of inflation as an issue, and and maybe not all of them fully understand it at the level that we were talking about, but um, but they will over time if, as it continues to grow. And um, you know, the next the next one may not take eight years. I mean, it took you know two thousand to two thousand eight, two thousand eight to you know twenty twenty. Um, you know, the next one might come sooner, and the dollars might be involved might be larger and. And it's, you know, we kind of went from the technology level to the housing level to the sovereign debt level. I mean, what are we going to go to the interplanetary level? I mean, it's like, what can we inflate next? <laughs> so, yeah. and I, yeah. and again, I'm just, I'm a, you know, call me naive or call me a hopeless optimist. I, I just, I believe we can get through it without war that, you know, that the people, the, the issue we've really got is the centralized power at the government and the central bank level. And these people are just dopes. I mean, they're they're self-serving dopes, and you know, um, as more and more people come to realize that, um, you know, and more and more people say this emperor is naked, you know, they're going to get called on it. And if if everyone was behaving in the way that sound money people do, which is buying sound money and abandoning fiat, you know, eventually the fiat will fail. It's just it's it's mathematics, right? Yeah, I've got a I've got a question. Um... 
for you, Larry, just about sound money in general. Uh, you know, it's, it's actually pointed out to me that uh, Alan Greenspan, who's kind of the architect of modern central banking, right, if you don't want to go back to John Law, who was maybe the OG architect of what mm-hmm. we're doing today. Um, but uh, Alan Greenspan used to be a sound money guy. Uh, and he's got this great quote. It's like, why would I believe in sound money if, uh, you know, governments aren't honest enough to enforce it or something like that? Uh, so that kind of gets to Brent's point. I think there's something very seductive about the concept of sound money, which is it makes perfect sense uh, when you look at it um, as an idea. It's this like beautiful alignment of incentives actually between, uh, you know, governments and their people and, you know, protects the you know, your purchasing power and energy that you put into labor, all that kind of stuff. Um, but almost as from like a philosophical perspective, I feel like the perfect solution isn't usually the one that humanity picks. We're a messy race of people. Like we, we often choose uh, not great yeah. systems um, because we're imperfect, you know, evolutionarily. And, you know, my question to you is kind of that what Brent just brought up there, which is sound money is very seductive. We've had a gold standard for certain periods of time, but oftentimes governments wrestle control away from that. So uh, what would you kind of say to that? What's your response? Let me take that one. You know, that's, it's somewhat true and, and something that's well, it's an ideal that can't be achieved, but I like to look at what I consider, you know, kind of a couple of golden periods of sound money. I mean, probably the best one is, is you know, the United States from 1789 until kind of the, the 19th century, you know, and, and it, it wasn't as though somebody said, you know, thou shalt have sound money, but we just did because gold and silver were money. Mm. And, you know, there were crashes and booms and busts and so forth and issues and there was wildcat banking and, you know, um, Lincoln had the greenback. So there were... Within it, there were, you know, non-sound money episodes, but in general, you know, the standard of living increased enormously, enormously, probably the largest in history of mankind for American people between 1789 and 1900. I mean, it was some of the technological developments that occurred later in the century, but, um, you know, the and prices, I mean, nominal prices were pretty much flat during that time period, and so that, you know... I mean, there were campaigns that were run on, you know, what, what the country needs is a good 10 cent cigar whenever, you know, when inflation came along. I mean, you know, it was a it was a period where there was sound money and there was enormous progress made. I think what happened is academia and others, including Greenspan later on, you know, got intrigued with the notion that that, you know, mankind can engineer things better than natural law, which is, in my opinion, kind of a flawed concept. Mm. In Greenspan's case, I mean, I think he just... He was an Ayn Rand accolade, and he wrote about gold, and he, he fully understands gold. And, and he later, in his later years, kind of when he was still a central banker, said, well, we've got the effect. We effectively have a gold standard, even though they didn't. He was lying. But he, he got seduced by the fame of it all. I mean, being, being the maestro was a very seductive thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so he, you know, he abandoned his principles, in my, in my estimation. And there's some who say... That he did it intentionally to blow the system up more quickly to get back to sound money, but I don't believe that. I think he just sold out. He, he might be the guy that started the rumor that he did it to blow up the system. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I know we're, we're running near the end of our time here. You both have been super generous. Lots of food for thought here. Um, you, know what, I actually, you know what? I actually want to end it on something. I want to do one optimistic prediction from both of you for 2022. This is the first podcast episode of this year. We've talked about war too much. <laughs> and uh, I want a positive, something that you're excited about, something that gives you hope, something that makes you feel optimistic going into the new year. I, I am absolutely convinced that in a year and a half or by the end of next year, COVID is going to be a bad memory. Mm-hmm. That it was overdone, overhyped, um, herd immunity is being achieved, the variants won't be as strong, not many as, as many people are dying, the fear will go away. 
And I think we have a very, I, I think we'll actually have economic growth too. I think, I think by the end of this year, the COVID menace will be gone, completely gone. And, and that'll be a beautiful thing. We've, it's, it's long overdue, in my opinion. I, I like that one. I think that a lot of COVID will be behind us. I don't know if it's completely gone uh, the way you're saying, but I, you know, that that would be that would be a fantastic scenario for me. I think the the one thing that I would say that is, you know, I, I know sometimes I come across as a pessimist, and uh, and I always have to say like I I actually do, a lot of the stuff that I that I think is going to happen I don't say it because I want it to happen, and I you know I. I'm actually, I'm not a depressed guy who's sitting in a dark room just with the cloud over my head. I, I'm actually a pretty happy guy. I'm a fairly optimistic guy. I think that we're going to get through it. That's what I'd say. It's like life, you know, that, that, that cheesy line from the movie, like life finds a way, right? Like, I think we're going to go through some hard years, but I think we're going to learn a lot of lessons that we've kind of forgotten. Um, you know, we had the greatest generation, you know, 60, 70 years ago, and, you know, we've lost a lot of that. And I think, uh, the one thing, good thing about the fourth turning is that if you if you keep going, you eventually get to the spring, yeah. right? And I I think whatever comes next, um, you know, is a is going to be better than what we have now. I, I don't I don't know that we're going to get there next year, uh, but uh, but uh, life finds a way. Guys, you've already been super generous with your time. Uh, if folks want to find out more about you, follow your work, uh, you know, engage with you, whatever, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I, uh, you know, I do a number of these podcasts. Uh, I, you know, I always enjoy coming on Blockworks and speaking with you, Michael. I think if you go to you, if you go to your website and search the history, you know, you can find several different uh, episodes. Uh, if you go to YouTube and do the same thing, you know, just type in Brent Johnson or Santiago Capital, you'll get a number of links. I'm pretty active on Twitter. You can leave the look me up under Santiago Capital or my handle is at Santiago AU Fund. Um, and so I'm happy to converse that way as well. And I'm just on Twitter under my name. And then uh, I have a website, ema2.com, which has quarterly reports and papers and letters. And I've given some speeches. You can Google my name. You'll see I, I gave a speech on sound money down at the New Orleans Gold Show, which I consider to be probably the best overview of how I see things. So Excellent. All right, guys. I heard it. It's <laughs> thank good. You. Uh, this has been okay, a ton of fun. Thank you very much, Michael. Nice to be on your show. Thanks very much, guys. See you again soon. Cheers. Thanks, Mike.